Welcome to Generation Slay, where we know that Gen Zers are shifting important narratives, changing the world, creating incredible content, and making a name for themselves in a big way. Each episode, we interview the Gen Z entrepreneurs, creatives, and innovators who are slaying it in their fields. I'm Gianluca Russo, a 21-year-old freelance writer based out of New York. My work primarily focuses on fashion, entertainment, and plus-size representation, and has been published in GQ, Glamour, Teen Vogue, Nylon, Vice, The Huffington Post, and more. When I'm not writing, I'm usually ranting about my dog or Ariana Grande. You can find me on social media at G underscore Russo one. And I'm Emma Havakorst, a 21-year-old Fordham University marketing major, writer, and consultant to both businesses and rising Gen Zers. I'm a chai latte and donut addict, and I spend most of my waking hours on Instagram, where you can find me at Emma Havy. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning back in to Generation Slay. On this week's episode, we're so excited to have freelance writers Tess Garcia and Isabella Gomez Sarmiento on to discuss the ever-changing media landscape, getting published in major publications while still in college, and much more. Tess Garcia is a student at the University of Michigan who doesn't really feel like explaining her major. She's penned articles for InStyle, Teen Vogue, Ms. Magazine, Latina Magazine, and more. She's also a certified yoga instructor, and she sticks her head under the sink several times a day to replenish her curls. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento is a Venezuelan writer based in Atlanta, finishing her BA at Georgia State University. Her work has been published in CNN, Remescla, Noisy, and more. She currently writes a political column for Teen Vogue and spends most of her time listening to Bad Bunny. Hi, Isabella and Tess. We are so happy to have you on the show today. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So let's start with the basics. Can you guys tell us a little bit about how you first got into writing and what your first quote unquote big break was? Um, Isabella, we'll start with you, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So um, my sophomore year of college, I did like an online magazine internship writing about um, art and culture around Atlanta. Um, and then after the, that was around the time of the 2016 election, after that happened, um, I was really looking for something positive to focus on in the country's political landscape. And the first Latina um, state legislator had uh, won an election here in Georgia. So I interviewed her for a magazine that was called um, Antebellum at the time. It then changed its name to Unsweetened Magazine. Um, and that kind of turned into a series highlighting Latina leaders in the South. And then that summer after my sophomore year, I kind of used those clips and those like interview experiences. And I pitched um, Allison Maloney, who I love beyond belief. She's the news and politics features editor at Teen Vogue. Um, I pitched her a story about medical students in Venezuela. And then um, she workshopped my pitch with me. That was my first byline at Teen Vogue. Um, and since then I began pitching her more regularly and kind of contributing uh, to Teen Vogue. So that was really where it all um, started for me was, was with Teen Vogue and with Allie, who has really championed my work. Mm-hmm. What about you, Tess? Okay, my path is quite different. So I'm really glad that I got to hear that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I would say I, my first, I suppose, big break was for Teen Vogue in 2017. It was my freshman year of college. 
And I had just a few months before started writing for my school newspaper at the University of Michigan called the Michigan Daily. And I'd gotten pretty involved there fast. Um, but I knew that, I don't know, I think I was just looking for something additional in somewhere where I could put the put the stories that I was most passionate about forward to a broader audience, to put it bluntly. And so I just left and right started sending crazy, probably terribly formatted pitches to editors at Teen Vogue because I'd been reading them my whole life and I loved the direction they were going in underneath Elaine Walteroth and Philip Cardi at the time. And eventually, probably after a good six months, seven months of emails, probably a good 50 emails in total, I got a response back from the fashion editor at the time, Jessica Andrews, and said to one of my pitches, a Q&A with a model named Leomi Anderson, um, she said, we like this, what's your rate? And I had to be like, shoot, what's my rate? And I asked around to all the people I knew who'd ever had any remote experience with freelance writing to try to conjure something up. But yeah, after that, I published that first piece, which is just a standard Q&A format with this model, Yomi, who I had gotten to know through a previous internship. So it was kind of funny to see how something that I wasn't sure would relate to my writing, a former internship with a modeling agency, ended up coming back and being part of the reason that I was able to get my first successful pitch out there with a big name. Right, definitely. And obviously, I mean, we have to go further into Teen Vogue because I think it's so special for one, because it's where I met both of you. Um, that's kind of what brought us all together at like, and we all like weirdly got published there all around like the exact same time. And I think it was just when Elaine came in, especially, you know, around 2016, Elaine was there and then Phil came in to do the digital and things started to change. Um, before that, of course, Teen Vogue was always this this place for, you know, young women's fashion and fun and great. But I think at that point, while it, it caught my attention and probably yours as well, was because of the, the, different, um, the different areas they were hitting in terms of diversity where you know, I felt I felt seen in the magazine. Um, I'm sure you guys did as well. So let's talk a little more about Teen Vogue then. So where, um, kind of when you started writing for Teen Vogue, how did that kind of help you to expand your writing because of the platform it was creating in terms of diversity and um, getting these unique perspectives? Um, I'll I'll go ahead and <laughs> start. I, I don't uh, want to step on anybody's says, but I think for me something that really resonated with. Um, the direction that Phil took, Phil and Elaine took Teen Vogue in, um, and especially with having Allison come in as a news and politics editor, was um, how seriously they took young people's voices when it came to politics and when it came Amen. to um, social organizing and activism, and just in general how seriously they took us as young people. That made a big impact for me because it kind of opened up this new space where it was like you're a young writer, but you know you have ideas and you're capable of doing research and you're capable of getting these interviews and you're capable of writing stories that matter and that maybe cover issues that nobody else is writing about. Um, so I think for me, that was, that's, and that, that's still what I love so much about Teen Vogue is it creates that space and it doesn't, it, do, it doesn't try to dumb things down for young people or it doesn't try to act like young people aren't capable of understanding these concepts and of taking action about the things that they care about. So um, for me, I think it just really gave me the opportunity to be like, you know, writing about um, that first story I did, I was writing about um, medical students in Venezuela who were on the ground during very violent protests, like helping save lives, um, you know, when when government forces kind of clashed with um, protesters on the street. And then 
a couple of months later, my second piece for Teen Vogue was about um, a young man who was detained at an immigration detention center here in Georgia. And I got to kind of, you know, interview people from the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center and a couple of different, you know, big nonprofits who work in the immigration realm and like really dive into the issue of um, detained youth in immigration detention centers specifically. And I don't think that's an opportunity I would have gotten anywhere else. And I don't think that kind of expertise would have made it onto my portfolio so quickly if it wasn't for editors like Allison who were like, yeah, you know, you can you can do this. Like you're a writer, you're smart, you're capable of like chasing the story and and turning in something good. And um, and that piece was part of the kids incarcerated series that they did for that whole month, which actually won an award later in the year. So I mean, I think for me, just like their their belief in young people's ideas has been the the biggest the biggest thing that I like really love and and resonate with about Teen Vogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would echo all of that. First of all, just to say that. It's one thing to write. <clears throat> it's one thing to write and publish stories geared toward young people, targeted toward a young audience, but it's another to back up that talk and publish work written by those people for those people. Um, and I mean, I think that's something that's rising in all forms in media. Um, I mean, obviously, with a movement toward representation, people want to see people like them creating content for people like them. And I think that Team Vogue has kind of opened the floodgates. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a cold. Um, but Team Vogue has kind of opened the floodgates for that sort of that sort of content with a youth specific um a youth a youth oriented voice from young people versus what adults think we should know. And mm-hmm. I also think that given that its origins are obviously like you said, Gianluca, in fashion and um young women's fashion and beauty, lifestyle, all of that. I've always been interested in the intersections of fashion and politics, fashion and just, I mean, current events and how these things do intersect and how fashion can be an intellectual pursuit. And so when Vogue began covering things like the kind of work you were doing, Isabella, I started to realize that maybe this could be the platform where that type of content belongs and I did start to see bits and pieces of that on Team Vogue, which was super exciting. But then I realized that that was a gap that I could fill mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's one that Team Vogue appeared to be creating space for or appeared to be open to. And I remember watching some interview or reading some interview with Phil where he was like, yeah, I'm taking pictures from young people all the time. And I was like, sure, everyone says that. But then I did it and eventually it worked, mm-hmm. um, like I said before. But then at that point I realized – yeah, this is the time. It's it's long overdue. It's time for us to take this into our own hands, show people that young people, obviously, as we all know, are capable of understanding things that have ordinarily been geared to either older audiences or very specific affluent mm-hmm. know, business types of audiences, corporate audiences. And I began to pursue... My first couple of stories were about um, models looking for um, models pursuing activism. So my first story was about Leomi Anderson, who is a model and activist um, who launched her own, who had just launched actually at the time, her own brand and blog, which she created for women, specifically young women of color, to have a platform to publish their own work. And I thought that was right up Teen Vogue's alley. 
And that ended up being super exciting for me to hear about someone doing the type of work that I had always hoped to see and read myself. And then I went on to write a story about London Myers, who is another model. She is a black model. And she posted a video on Instagram of herself being ignored backstage at a show um, by hairstylists. And I was able to interview her, talk to her about her history in the modeling industry, how she sees this happening all the time, what hairstylists need to be conscious of, what they can do in the future, and what designers need to know before hiring a hairstylist. Mm -hmm. And that story got picked up everywhere. And that for me was like, shoot, not only do I have an interest in this, but there are people out there who have been wanting to read about these things, these things related to the fashion industry from a more social justice oriented approach. And that was super exciting to know that my voice had a place somewhere and that it was Teen Vogue. Right, definitely. And I love all that you said, Isabella, especially what you said about Teen Vogue kind of giving us, you know, in a sense, like giving us an authority and kind of showing that, you mm-hmm. know, even though we are young and our students that are like work and our voice still mattered. And I think, you know, that resonated with me, obviously with you two as well, because Teen Vogue really gave us that platform to grow um, and kind of, you know, take that that first really big step, because obviously writing for Teen Vogue, period, is a big deal. But then covering the kinds of things that you guys did um, is a completely other level. Um, and so kind of where do you see um, or what do you think that, you know, writing for Teen Vogue for a while now has taught you about Generation Z? I mean, obviously, we know that young people want to be engaged, they want to have a voice, and they want to have a say in their own lives. But what else has being able to write about Teen Vogue and to dig into its audience taught you about this new generation that's coming up now? I really love this question because... um... I don't know. I think it's taught me so much and it's something that I'm still constantly learning as I keep writing for Teen Vogue and as I keep reading Teen Vogue because um, the pieces that Teen Vogue continues to publish uh, are are still some of my favorite. Teen Vogue is still my favorite news source, I think, and it's still the place where I read things that I don't get to uh, read anywhere else. I think what it's really shown me about young people is that, I mean, just kind of to echo what you said, is that, you know, young people today are not scared to take a stand. They're not scared to claim their voices. They're not scared to claim their authority. Um, and, and they're not scared to really dig for the things that they're passionate about and take action regarding those. I mean, I think specifically with um, a lot of the coverage regarding like climate change and the climate marches um, and anti-fascism movements. I know um, Teen Vogue's uh, Lucy just did a story about, you know, a, a, a teen in Italy that um, stood up to these uh, fascists that were marching in the street. I mean, you know, it just shows that like these young people, it doesn't matter, you know, if they're 10 years old, it doesn't matter if they're 18 years old, like these people know what they care about. They know that what they have to say about it matters and they're not letting anybody hold them back from doing that. Um, and it continues to inspire me and it continues to be the reason I love writing for Teen Vogue and I love interviewing the young people that, um, you know, make up Teen Vogue stories because they're just doing amazing work already and we all have so much to learn from them. Yeah, I mean, once again, I think I'm just going to keep saying this every time you answer something, Isabella, but I would uh, echo all of that. But I would also add that I think the most valuable lesson I've I've learned from this, from my tenure, I guess, at Teen Vogue has been that this generation and no generation is a monolith. And I can have, I can carry particular beliefs and that's wonderful. And I can be super passionate about them. 
but there will be times when I find people of my age, of my demographic, who don't agree, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're throwing hate speech at me for putting my views forward in an op-ed, but that does mean that we can open up a discourse that I don't necessarily think would have been able to exist had Team Vogue not provided our generation with this sort of platform for every type of issue ranging from a model being ignored because of her hair backstage to Venezuelan medical students. And I think that that's really invaluable and that's something that's going to hopefully define us for years to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously like your insights from Teen Vogue and freelancing are so crucial. And for people who may be listening who are considering freelancing or are interested in it, we'd sort of like to get a little bit more in depth with you guys about sort of that aspect. So you both started freelancing when you were in school. So can you talk a little bit about your experience of balancing those and how you started to network and connect and figure out, you know, how to freelance and really learned that process and met and connected with editors and other writers? Like, how did that process work for you, especially when you're balancing it with your education? Um, I think for me, a lot of um, a lot of that comes back to like when I started expanding my freelancing beyond my contributions to Teen Vogue and kind of writing for other publications. A big part of that came um, because I connected with a writer here in Atlanta, Becca Grimm, um, who I love and admire and have learned so much from. Um, I I met her at a panel that was happening in Atlanta and um, I asked to get involved with Dope Girls, which is a zine that she runs raising um, the voices of marginalized people and and uplifting um, reproductive justice. And um, I think Becca really helped me kind of gain perspective. I mean, she's just been mentoring me throughout throughout my career and throughout my time in school and really helped me um, understand how to develop those relationships, understand how to pitch people. Um, She's recommended me to a ton of editors. So, I mean, I've had a lot of bylines, you know, I wrote an essay for Vinyl Me Please, for example, where, um, you know, that editor was someone that Becca knew and they asked Becca who could write the story and Becca recommended me. So that was something that I got commissioned for that I didn't even have to pitch. So I think really like finding writers that you look up to, um, even if that's not in person, like I was super lucky that, you know, I get to see Becca all the time, but I think with the internet, this is something you can still do is find someone whose work you admire, even if you don't want to write about the same things as them, um, connect with them, show them that you want to learn, um, be open to learning from them and to owning your mistakes and to knowing that, you know, they've been in this field longer and they're going to be able to help you. Um, and just, yeah, just really be open to what they're going to teach you and know that, you know, those relationships, I think, are what count the most at the end of the day when it comes to freelancing, because I've had so many writing opportunities where it's been an editor will email me because someone else I've worked with before has recommended me to them. So, I mean, I think, you know, those relationships and the quality of the work that you're turning in and, and you know, what you're what you're showing, you're, who you're showing yourself to be when you connect with people in the industry um, goes way beyond um, where you think it's going to go. So always keep that in mind, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and just to to go off of that, I think, like Isabella mentioned, the concept of mentorship is crucial, but that can take so many different forms. And I think that that's something that's it's pretty misconstrued, that you have to be in the same place as somebody. You have to have some nepotistic connection to somebody in order to break into freelance journalism, but that's just not the case. Um, 
I actually began my sort of, I suppose, adult life career doing um, some internships in high school in the summers in New York. And I ended up realizing through those, none of them were in journalism, but I realized through them that journalism was actually what I wanted to do in lieu of all the things I'd been trying. But throughout those times, I was able to kind of garner a connection with several people who I'm still in touch with now who are within the industry, particularly of fashion journalism, but journalism in general. And I have reached out to those people time and time again. They're the ones who actually suggested to me back in high school that someday I should try my look at freelance writing. And I was like, what's, what's that? You're telling me people just, just write for whoever because they asked to. And um, I think that if I hadn't been open to opportunities that weren't necessarily like my number one choice, like these internships in PR that I, I really didn't know if I wanted to do PR, but I knew I wanted to meet people and I knew I wanted to try new things. I, I don't know if I would be where I am and I don't know if I would have even known how many opportunities are out there if I hadn't just taken the leap and said hi to people in the circumstances that I was in at the time. I think that's crucial. And like Isabella said, the internet is huge, but you'd be surprised how few people actually reach out to editors and writers with things like, hey, I just wanted to tell you how much I really enjoy this article. It spoke to me for X, Y, Z reasons. Here's my resume if you'd ever like to take a look at it or something of that nature all the best tests like you just never know how how infrequently people receive that or who it'll speak to so I think things like that also can propel a career forward like nothing else oh yeah absolutely um and Tess I think you actually mentioned a little bit about rates before and that's something we definitely want to get into a little bit yeah um, because as we all know, like money is considered such a taboo subject, but in sort of gig economy type roles like freelancing or photography, it's so hard at the beginning to determine your rates and figure out, you know, the value of your time and of your words and what you're really worth. So I'd love to hear from you guys a little more about how you figured that out for yourself. Like, how other people can figure that out and sort of what you do with all of that, because it's such a hidden process that people don't talk about. Yeah. I mean, Isabella, if you're cool with it, I can jump on this just because I, it piggybacks exactly off of what I was saying before. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Basically the people that I met through these internships previously in high school And from there, the people they introduced me to online and so on and so forth um, were actually able to help me figure it out. My first rate when I was asked by the editor who accepted my first story for Teen Vogue, um, she just sent me an email asking what my rate was for the story. She didn't give me a ballpark or an offer. And so I was sort of left in the dust. That was something I hadn't considered because I truthfully didn't think my pitches were going to be accepted just because they hadn't been historically Mm-hmm. Um, but I texted about, I would say probably like four or five people who I'd met previously, um, or been connected with through somebody else 
who I knew had experience with freelance writing in some capacity, regardless of whether it was for a publication like Teen Vogue or something completely unrelated. I sent them texts and said, here's the type of story I'm doing. Here's the approximate word count that they're looking for. Here's about how much work I think it'll take me. What makes sense for a rate for an incoming brand new writer? And I talked it out with one woman who used to be a contributor at Glamour. And she ended up telling me we settled together on 150 because I would say that looking back now, I would probably have asked for more. But at the time, I was super, super just overzealous about writing for Team Vogue because I had no bylines like that. And it was it makes sense or it made sense at the time. I'm not sure now um, for somebody who didn't have those types of bylines, who only really had her school newspaper at the time um, to show for her writing. And so I came back with that. They were cool with it. I have had to barter rates before, you know, go back and forth with editors where they'll give me an explanation for why maybe the rate I've proposed doesn't make sense. But I would say, yeah, 150 was the starting point for the first couple of months because I just didn't even consider going higher, truthfully. But for a Q&A, that felt, that felt fair because it's not as much work as actually taking this interview that you just transcribed and forming it, formatting it into a super clean, well-written feature. I really just transcribed an interview that I conducted and wrote a little mini intro, a couple paragraphs. So 150 felt like a fair trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to hear that because I wish I had been uh, as smart as Tess was in reaching out to other people. I think Teen Vogue was my first paid byline. And at that point, I didn't really have a lot of people in my life who were in the journalism field and who could kind of help me figure that out. And I didn't really get anything from Google. So um, Ali, I, I was paid 150 for my first piece. It was what Ali offered and I took it because I was honestly just so happy to be... Um, writing about uh, writing for Teen Vogue and writing about you know the subject because I really cared about the story um and then I think over time I, I was really lucky because Allison um th- this whole podcast is going to be me talking about how much I love Allison but she really like bumped my rates up for me without me asking over time um and if I gave her an amount she would kind of give me $50 more when she sent over the um statement of work which you know comes like before the invoice like she would basically tell me she was paying me more than I had asked for um but I think I waited too long to get to a point where I claimed the rates that I should have been claiming. Um, and that's a big thing that I'm working on now is negotiating my rates. Um, and even if they say no, it's like I, I had, you know, I had an editor offer me. Um, I, I don't remember how much money. I think she offered me $200 for a piece and I asked for $250. Um, and she said she couldn't swing it in her budget right now. But I felt great because at least I asked and I didn't, you know, it. I still did the piece. I mean, I'm going to be honest, like. I'm a student. I'm, you know, working as a freelancer. I don't have another job on the side just because I want to put as much time as I can into my writing. Um, and there are rates that I won't accept, but for the most part, like if it seems like the work and money balances out, I'll try my best to make it work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just always asking and always advocating for yourself will make such a huge difference in the way that you feel a, when you're doing the work and B when you get paid. Um, yes. So that's something that I really wish I had started doing earlier in my career. And um, and yeah, I've just been really lucky to have editors who kind of like push me to ask for more money um, or who already will offer me, you know, higher rates. But definitely like it's still a work in progress and it's still something that um, I don't know. I think you should learn it as early as you can that like no one is going to be offended. And if they are, then that's probably someone you don't want to be working with. Was about to say the same exact thing. And <laughs> I'm so glad we're on that same page because it could not be more true. 
Yeah, totally. I agree too. And that's so like funny to hear about like your first race for Teen Vogue because mine was 152. And I remember like when I got the offer, I was like, I literally don't know anything about money. Like the most I'd ever been paid for <laughs> was like $60 from some random website. I was like, I guess that's fine. And right, like, because right. I didn't have like a support network. So I think now, like, I know like even like last week, I literally texted you, Isabella. I was like, um, how much are you getting paid for this? So I know what to charge. Yeah. Um, it's like now that I like have friends in media, it's so much easier to be able to reach out and be like, well, how much do you think this site has? Because not every site has the same budget. Absolutely. So knowing that and having friends who write for other sites helps you to do that. But before, it's it's kind of unfortunate. A lot of people on the internet aren't as open talking about rates. And that's something mm-hmm. why, like, in particular, I'm very open about it. And I'll tell you, like, what I get paid for anything because I feel like the younger writers need to know, like, if this if this like publication has a ton of money, then you should not be writing for $20. It's a Gen Z thing. We got to be transparent. Yeah, exactly. Um, So then going off of that, uh, obviously, you know, um, you guys are getting ready for graduation. You have a little time left, um, but you're also like working as a freelancer during this time. Where do you see the, the future of digital media going and how do you see your career path kind of aligning with that? What are your plans um, going forward? Um, I mean, that's a that's a big question. I think um, <laughs> I graduated in a month, so it's coming up very soon um, and still trying to figure out, um, you know, what what my future is going to look like. I think um, I think there's kind of I mean, you know, we've seen so much downsizing and so many layovers um, in recent years, and especially in recent months in the digital media landscape. And we've seen a lot of um, really brave people, you know, across these big companies and, and small companies alike trying to unionize and trying to make sure that their demands are being met and that their unions are being recognized. I think that's the biggest thing that gives me hope for digital media. Um, I will say like, you know, when Vice laid off, uh, you know, people like Kim Kelly who were at the forefront of the unionizing, that was a huge heartbreak for me because that was the only thing that was really um, propelling me forward. But you know, that work is still being done. I think I think it kind of goes through waves. Like I feel like digital media with the internet was this big boom at first. Um, and now we're kind of seeing the consequences of the mismanagement of that money because the money is there. It's not that the money is not there. It's that the money is not making it down to the people who are writing the content. Um, but I think we're seeing a lot of writers kind of look for solutions and look for ways to come together and, and you know, demand that respect and demand those wages and demand um, just that recognition from their employers. So I think I think things are hopefully going to look up and we're going to kind of figure out a new way for the... <laughs> for the freelance economy to work. I don't know if that's like too optimistic of me, but I mean, I see people doing really amazing work, um, you know, on Twitter all the time um, mm-hmm. in regards to like unionizing and in regards to, you know, really making sure that freelance and digital media labor is being, you know, paid the way it deserves. Um, for me personally, I don't really know. I think um, with the column, I will definitely keep freelancing at Teen Vogue for as long as, long as they'll have me. Um, and kind of reaching out to other outlets. But I think, you know, I do often think about what kind of other jobs I would be interested in to complement my writing, because I realize that writing as a full-time job is not the most viable thing right now and maybe not in the future. So, I mean, I definitely, you know, consider organizing positions, um, getting involved with, you know, nonprofits and, and things that I care about, doing other other scopes of communication. Like, it's something I consider because I think... Um, it can be a lot of stress on yourself to think you have to live as a freelancer to 
be a validated writer and you definitely don't have to. And I think, you know, that relates to a lot of artistic fields too. Like it's okay to have a day job. It's okay to have a side job. It's okay to have other hustles. Like your work is still valid and important. So um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm seeing for the next couple of years. I don't know, Tess, you have a little bit more time left in college. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness. I (laughs) I have no idea what I would do to be completely, to be completely honest. If I were to graduate now, I truthfully, I'm not sure I'll know next year. But anyway, I will say that as far as the future of digital media goes, I do agree with Isabella that it does seem to be in flux where there are moments where it's, it seems like there's an explosion of incredible content and people are getting the recognition they deserve. Everyone's getting hired everywhere and it's all unicorns and rainbows. But then a few months later you hear about enormous layoffs or refusal to recognize unions at companies like BuzzFeed that are just massive. And once again, like Isabella mentioned, the money is there. So it's just disappointing to hear that it's not being distributed the way that readers and writers alike know it should be distributed. Um, And so with that said, I do think, I mean, I'm a little bit less of an optimist than Isabella in that I see that continuing for a long time, as long as there is a hierarchical power structure anywhere um, to some degree. But I do think that with people like us heading out of high school, heading out of college into the big, bad real world, I think we'll see greater frequency of the type of content that we're producing. But at the same time, as people of our generation move into roles of editor roles, I think that that could end up dictating a lot of our path forward in the sense that I think we'll start to see writers not necessarily getting the compensation they completely deserve. I think that'll take forever, but seeing improvements, seeing improvements for sure. I think that we're at a point where the people above us right now are a little bit stuck and it's not necessarily their fault. There's been a groundwork laid for them. That's just sort of, stagnant um like a dumpster fire was created and now they're left to put it out as far as digital media goes because the people before them really had no way of knowing what would happen with this digital boom Mm -hmm. and now as gen y is sort of taking it over it's it's up to them to keep as many doors open as possible for themselves and for us and so with that said i don't know if i'm certain of what a future will look like but i know that there will be one Mm -hmm. and i know that incredible work will continue to be made and if people like us keep coming out here we'll be made more frequently and it's looking like people are too fed up to not receive compensation that's at least in the ballpark of what they know they deserve and so I'm hoping that that is put into practice more and I'm hoping for myself that I'd love to work in a newsroom one day or in a magazine office, whatever the case may be, whatever a magazine or newsroom evolves into by the time I graduate in a year. I'm not sure what that will look like. Honestly, things are moving so fast, but I would love to be on staff somewhere. I love freelance work, but it's not. I love freelance work because I can do it from school. Mm -hmm. I don't think it suits my personality beyond allowing me to function as a student and a writer at the same time. I think once the student part is over, I 
I don't think freelance will be my number one go-to. I think I would, I would try to find some type of full-time role, whether in editorial or in like a closely related communication sector. Of course I'd keep writing no matter where I was, but I don't think freelance would be my number one. It wouldn't be my go-to obviously for compensation, but um, I think if I could get an on-staff writing role anywhere while working some other side hustle regardless, I think that that would be what I would go for. Obviously, depending on the publication, but that's a goal. Right. Totally. And I, I mean, I agree with you. Like, obviously, like, freelance life is real hard and it's definitely not for everyone. But I think for me, what freelancing has made me realize is that um, kind of a career in media is not so narrow minded as like movies and TV shows might make you think like it's not you it's not you just have to like work at a magazine and that's it like there's so many different aspects of digital media that you can have a part of and I think that's why you know freelancing during school um, is so great for students because it allows you to kind of take the time to try all those different things and figure out like do you like editorial or like social media or marketing or copywriting or fact checking or all these different things Um, so I think that's why it's really important to to really um, dig into that while you're still in school RT yeah Mm mm-hmm Definitely. So we're going to wrap up now because you guys have given us so much insight and we don't want to overwhelm anyone. With I just texted John Luca heads up. I have to go in like 10. So this, <laughs> this pans oh. out, <laughs> but I'm so happy to have been here. Um, so can you tell our wonderful audience where they can find you and reach you on the internet? Yes. So um, I'm working on building my website right now. That's something that we haven't talked about that I think is super important for freelancers. And I've been horrible about getting a website together where you can follow me. But I'm on Twitter um, at Isabellafant. Uh, I made that username when I was like 12, as I'm sure everyone listening to this has been on Twitter since they were around that age. Um, I-S-A-B-E-L-L-E-P-H-A-N-T. Twitter is my go-to when it comes to posting my writing. Um, so that's where you can find me. Beautiful. Excellent. Yeah, I too made my uh, Twitter and Instagram handles when I was 12 or 13, give or take. Um, you can find me on Twitter at hi, this is Tess. Instagram, hi, this is Tess. That's like the intro, hi, this is Tess. The mm-hmm. words phonetically, how you think actual English words. And I also, I would agree about a website being crucial. I recently invested in that, and now I've got my own little Squarespace. You can find me at TessGarcia.com. Yes, I paid for that domain. Yes, I invested myself. We'll see how it goes. But I worked real hard on it, so please check it out if you feel so compelled. (laughs) I love that. You know, I already have. (laughs) Oh, my God, you're so cute. Um, Well, thank you both. We had such a good time getting to talk about all this today. So thank you both for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having us. This was so fun, and I I love what you guys are doing. So it's been an honor. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Generation Slay. We have new episodes launching every Tuesday. If you liked what you heard today or felt like you got some great insight from our guest, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice so that more people will see the podcast and hear what our incredible guests have to say. In the meantime, if you have an idea of someone we should have on the show or just want to talk to us, 
You can find the podcast at Generation Slay on Twitter and Instagram and at www.generationslay.com. Keep slaying and we'll see you next week.